Well, I've given the message today the title, The Tightrope of Faith. How many of you guys have ever wanted to walk a tightrope? Anybody? Yeah, a few people. I think you're crazy. I think it's the scariest looking thing in the world. But imagine yourself as a tightrope walker. That takes a ton of skill. I know for me, if I tried to be a tightrope walker, I would absolutely fall. Now imagine being a tightrope walker and having weights in both hands. In your right hand and your left hand, you've got weights. And so you have to balance these things or you will fall. To me, that's the way I see the Christian life. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of balance. And it's a hard journey. And I think there are oftentimes weights in our hands on either side that keep us from being able to have that balance. And I think two of the biggest weights we see are the weights of insecurity and the weights of pride. Insecurity is when you basically feel like God comes to you and says, I've got a plan for you, but you think, that can't be your plan, God. You wouldn't use me. God, I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not skilled enough. God wants me, no way. And then the contrast is pride. You've got this weight of pride at times where someone comes to you and says, hey, I think you're the guy for the job. And your response is, well, obviously I am. Look how awesome I am. Look how good looking I am. Look how talented I am. And if our balance is off, whether it's to insecurity or whether it's to pride, we absolutely will fall and we won't be able to do what God made us to do. We need balance. And so today I'm going to look at basically three different things in the story of Gideon. One is Gideon's insecurity, two is Gideon's pride, and three is the balance that he achieves for a brief moment in the story. And we see this all in Gideon's life. So I'm getting text messages. My phone is on the stage. Judges chapter 7 if you're not there. Here's the backstory to the story of Judges chapter 7. Gideon is an insecure young man, and he is constantly in hiding. There's this tribe called the Midianites that are attacking Israel, and they're basically the ISIS of their day. They were so nasty that they would drive the Israelites to hide in caves from their evilness and just how they were going around. It said they were like a plague of locusts. They would come in and destroy their crops, destroy their animals. And God comes to Gideon. We looked at this last time we were here. God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, I choose you. You're the one who's going to deliver your people. And Gideon says, I doubt that, Lord. I'm the weakest in my family. My family's the weakest and I am the weakest. And God says, no, no, Gideon, you're a mighty man. And Gideon says, no, no, not me. And God gives him signs. He gives him an angel. The angel causes fire to come down and consume this offering. He goes through this weird thing with a sheep fleece. He puts the sheep fleece, it's this little ball of wool on the ground. And he says, God, if I wake up in the morning and that ball of wool is wet, but the ground is dry, then I'll know you're with me. And then that happens. And he's like, oh, that's not enough proof, God. If the next morning I wake up and the wool is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll know you're with me. And God, of course, does it. And Gideon still doubts, but God gives him his mission. His mission is to go and destroy the idols in the village. So he does it, and he's insecure. He sneaks out at night, and he does it. He struggles with insecurity, but he does it. And and what happens is the villagers revolt, and they try to kill Gideon, but Gideon's dad steps up and says, hold on, guys. 
Gideon smashed our idol. Like, doesn't that prove that our idol's not a real God? And everyone's like, oh yeah, because real God shouldn't be able to be smashed by hammers. That makes sense. So Gideon starts this little revival in his town. God uses him despite his insecurity. And now the situation Gideon is in is he's become the reluctant leader of this resistance army. Think of kind of like how Katniss became the leader of the resistance in Hunger Games, or I prefer Star Wars. Luke Skywalker becomes sort of this figure as the leader of the rebel alliance, him and Princess Leia and Han Solo. And right now, the situation that they're in is God has called Gideon and his army to attack Midian. So think of the scrappy rebel alliance, and they're about to go up against the Empire and the Death Star. So they're outnumbered. Um, The situation is bleak, but they have hope. You know, they've got this army together, and they think with a little bit of luck and with God on our side, we can defeat the enemy. So they have this plan to have this full all-out attack with their army, but God has a different plan. So let's look at verse 7, or sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerubal, um, that's Gideon's nickname. Anytime you see Jerubal, it basically means the destroyer of Baal, because remember, he smashed the idol of Baal. So Jerubal, Gideon, and his men camped at the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley north, near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men. I'd be like, wait, what? Like, we have a small army, they have a big army. Why? Do you say we have too many men? Well, God gives the answer. He says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. They would say, my own strength has saved me. So he says, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave the mountain. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. So Gideon has this army of about 30,000 people. And God says, you've got too many people. And Gideon's like, okay, what do you want me to do? And God said, why don't you ask them who is afraid? So Gideon's like, hey, any of you guys scared? And like 20,000 of them are like, I'm kind of scared. And Gideon's like, you can go home. It reminds me of that scene in Emperor's New Groove where he's like, "Uh, I've been turned into a cow. Can I go home? Yeah, you're excused. That's totally the situation here. So so 22,000 of these guys leave. Now, why does God do this? Well, you see, God wants the glory. He wants the glory. He wants a little taste of the glory. Now, is it because God is selfish? Well, no, it's because God doesn't want Israel to think that they did this alone because God knows that Israel needs to rely on him. Do you understand that? Like, God's not some glory hog. God understands that if Israel thinks that they can win on their own, they will go into battle on their own. Right now, they're in desperation mode. They're like, we need God. But if they were to defeat this battle with their huge army, or it's not as huge as the Midianites, but it's still pretty big, 30,000 men, they might start getting a big head. They might start thinking, well, hey, our army's pretty great. I bet we could defeat more people. And now they're getting in situations God doesn't want them to be in without his power. It's kind of like me, for instance. When I was a little kid, I, I drove a car really well on Mario Kart, and I thought I was amazing. I was like, I am such a good driver, but if I were to get in the actual car and start driving and like trying to throw turtles out the window, people would be like, what the heck are you doing? And I would absolutely crash. In the same situation, God needs them to understand you can't do this on your own. So look at verse four. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Now at this point, Gideon's probably like, what the, like 
20,000 left. I've got 10,000. These guys that we're fighting have like a billion. God, you're crazy. So God says, take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon is struggling with insecurity right now because his army is extremely stripped down. If I were him, I would think that God was crazy. He's already one of the most frightened men in Israel. When the story begins, Gideon is hiding from the enemy, and now he's very aware of his own weakness, and now he has a giant army fighting alongside him, which seems awesome, but God doesn't let him have the huge army. He's taking away his security. So Gideon has to completely trust in God, but it's hard. Verse 5, Gideon took the men down to the water, and the Lord said, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. I don't know anybody who drinks like a dog. Like, I don't know any, like, what would you do if, like, you had your friend over, and, like, you handed him a glass of water, and he started, like, like licking it like a dog? That'd be so creepy and weird, but apparently... A bunch of these dudes did it. And so a bunch of them leave, and all that's left is 300. That seems strange. That seems very strange. Verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, (laughs) those are the champs, the ones who drink like dogs, those are the best, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of them home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets and the others. This would be like, I mean, he's going against the army of Midian with 300 dudes. That would be like you fighting ISIS, like with your like neighborhood gang and rubber bands and Girl Scout cookies. That's, that would be the weirdest plan ever. I'm going to fight him with rubber bands and Girl Scout cookies. That's basically what he's going up against. So... The camp of Gideon lay below him in the valley. Verse 9, during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, hey, Gideon, get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands, dude. He's giving him assurance. And he says, listen, Gideon, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. And afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley. They were thick as locusts and their camels could be no more counted than the sands of the seashore. That is ancient eastern talk for that was a lot of people it was like the you could not see the end of them it it was incredibly incredible how big this army was like locust so Gideon needs this assurance he's he's like God I don't know if I can do this unless you prove to me you're here and it's obvious that God is working with him God is speaking to him but Gideon still doubts so God allows him to hear this strange nightmare that one of the Midianites has so he goes down to spy Look at verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. So Gideon's spying. Okay, He's creeping into the camp, and he hears two of the enemy talking about a weird dream. Verse 13. The guy who dreamed said, I had a dream that a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. Anyone ever had a weird dream about food? It's just like, yeah. So there's giant barley loaf comes rolling into the camp and it hits the tent with such a force that the temp over or the tent overturned and collapsed and his friend kind of like strokes his beard and he's like hmm dude I know what the meaning of that dream is 
This can only be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands, bro. We're going to die. That's what he got out of the dream. A piece of bread rolls into camp and knocks over a tent, and this guy's interpretation is we're all going to die. But Gideon hears this dream, verse 13, when Gideon, or verse 15, sorry, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He's like, hallelujah, this weird bread loaf dream means that we're going to win. So the next thing that we see is Gideon moves from insecurity to balance. This is a moment, you can go to the next slide. This is a moment where Gideon finds his balance. And it's this epic moment. It reminds me of in Star Wars, uh, A New Hope, when Luke Skywalker is down in the trenches of the Death Star, and he's flying, and he's trying to blow up the Death Star, and he's got two guys in X-Wings at his side, but Darth Vader's on his tail, and he's blowing up these guys. And so Luke is the only one left, and it's like down to the wire, and down to the wire, Obi-Wan Kenobi speaks to him and he says, use the force, Luke. Turn off your targeting computer. And so Luke switches off his targeting computer because he has this burst of confidence. He's like, the force is with me. I don't need technology. I can just use the force. And it reminds me of where Gideon's at. He's like, okay, I'm getting rid of my army. I'm getting rid of my security blanket and I'm just going to trust the Lord. He's moved past insecurity and into faith. He's found the balance. And so now with this burst of confidence, we see what somebody with the Spirit can do. So, verse 15, second half of verse 15, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, get up, guys. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And it says, dividing the 300 men into three companies, I'm assuming of 100 men each, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. This is weird. This is weird. He's got this army of 300. God says, you're going to win. So now he's completely dependent on the spirit. And what does the spirit tell him to do? The spirit leads him to a very strange weapon choice. Not swords, not spears, not bows. Hey, trumpets. We're starting a marching band and also a pottery class. Here's some empty jars with torches. It's just, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Like, this is basically a suicide mission. This is straight up, like, going against ISIS with rubber bands and cookies. This is, it's, it's weird. This is, like, if you asked any military strategist, strategist, I don't know, if I, strategery, that's a George W. Bush thing from back in the early 2000s. Anyway, I don't know what I'm saying, but what I'm trying to say is this is a bad strategy. That's what I meant to say. So verse 17, he says, watch me. Follow my lead, and when I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, you blow your trumpets and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So that's the plan. It's, it's kind of insane. It's like, okay, guys, we're not going to attack them. We're just going to make a lot of noise. Like, I'm just thinking, but if... I am, like, let's say me and Stefan and Daniel and Joseph decide to go fight this giant army, and we're like, hey, guys, what's our strategy? Why don't we make a ton of noise? That seems like a great way to get killed, because if these guys are making a ton of noise, what's going to happen? The camp's going to wake up and go, who is making that noise? And they're going to look and go, oh, it's just 300 dudes, and we've got, like, a million? Let's kill them. Like, that's, that's basically logically what should be happening here. But you know what? I'm sure that in Gideon's mind, 
and the minds of the other Israelites, there was another ancient story that was coming back to their mind, and that's the story of, does anyone guess, can anyone guess, what story would they be thinking of right now for courage? Yeah. Joshua and the wall of Jericho, similar situation. Israel has a small army. You've got this giant wall. You've got this terrible army that they're fighting against. And the strategy God gives them is blow trumpets, march around the city. So I'm sure in their mind, they're like, this plan seems insane. But a lot of times God's plans seem insane. So we have got to trust them. So it's the tightrope. They're walking that tightrope and they're not leaning to insecurity and they're not leaning to pride. They are, they found the balance. God tells us to do things that don't make sense at times, and a lot of times we'll either lean into our insecurity and we'll say, God, I just, that plan doesn't make sense. I can't do it. Or we'll lean into our pride and we'll say, I've got a better plan. I need to do this my way. I need to figure out my own issues. But balance, true balance is trusting the Lord in all situations. So let's see what happens. Verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as after they had changed the guard, and they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands, and the three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand, holding in their right hand the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites Woke up and killed them? No, it says they ran, crying out as they fled. So just picture this scene. This, there's this army of like a million dudes, and you've got these 300 men with torches, pots, and no swords. Uh, what was it? It was torches, pots, and trumpets. So they blow the trumpet, just this little do-do-do, <laughs> and then smash. And then like the guys wake up, and they just they hear trumpet, smash, and they see a bunch of torches, and they go, oh my gosh, we're surrounded by a million people. We're going to die. And they run away crying. This is insane. It's an insane victory. But it's, it's a victory that absolutely had to be from God. God was with them throughout the whole thing. You know, guys, whenever I think of like, the forces of darkness, you know, which for us here in America, it's like, what's the forces of darkness? I got a tummy ache. It's a demon. Like that's, when I was in Bible college, like that's what it was like. Everything was spiritual warfare. Um, But honestly, the enemy is constantly attacking. He's constantly in our life trying to tempt us, discourage us, depress us, and keep us as far away from the Lord as possible But I love this picture of how the enemy flees from the power of the Lord. You need to know that the forces of darkness in your life, the demons, the enemy is afraid of us when the Lord is with us. That's encouraging to me, to know that the enemy will flee from us. That's what the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you are trusting the Lord, when you are walking in the spirit, the enemy is afraid of you. And yeah, you become a target because he sees you as a threat, but you've got power on your side when you're trusting the Lord. Now, here's another thing to notice. What did they cry out? They said, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You see, God gets the glory. Yahweh's name is the first on the bill. When they cry out the sword of the Lord, it's Yahweh's name that shows up first. But you know what? God gets the glory, but he shares it with Gideon. Do you notice that? Gideon's included in the shout. And I love that picture of how God loves to involve his kids. Like God is doing great things, but he's not just here for himself. He's here for us. 
He loves you and he wants to include you. He wants to be able to say, hey, I am doing great things with you or with you or with you. Like God wants to say, hey, I am here and I'm doing great things in the world, but I'm including you with me. You're my partner in this. The whole Bible is a story about humanity's partnership with God and how we failed as Adam and Eve and as humanity. We messed up our end of the deal, but through Jesus, we can partner with God. Did you know that every single one of you, no matter how spiritual you feel or no matter how spiritually weak you feel or how empty you feel or how incapable or inferior or insecure you feel, God is looking at you and saying, I've got plans for you and I want to partner with you to do great things in this world. I love that picture. So I'm going to summarize verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Here's what happens. The Midianites become so afraid that they begin stabbing each other to death. It's insane. Like, there's this army of a bunch of people, and you've got those 300 soldiers blowing their trumpets, and they wake up, and their response is, we've got to run away. And then they're looking at their friends, and they're like, are you an enemy? Are you an enemy? And they just start stabbing each other. It's, it would, it's, it's kind of hilarious if it wasn't so graphic and intense, but it, it would make a really good action movie. Gideon doesn't even have to do anything. Like, think about that. Is Gideon the one stabbing? No, God is moving in such a way that these enemies are attacking themselves. So they end up chasing them through the hill country, and that's insane. This army, this giant army being chased by an army of 300 men. That's like a mouse chasing a cat. That's what's going on. And as they're chasing, Gideon pulls more and more Israelite soldiers to the chase. So just imagine, you've got this army of 300 chasing this giant army, and they're going through the villages, and as they're passing through the villages, Gideon's like, hey guys, join the chase. And now you've got pretty much the entire group of Israel chasing them. And as they're chasing, they cut them off at the Jordan River and they wipe them out. Gideon captures the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, great names, if any of you guys are thinking about future baby names, Oreb and Zeb. And so they kill those guys and they bring their heads to Gideon. So yeah, graphic, violent, gnarly, but successful mission, like super successful. And it's only possible through balance. The only way it's possible is through balance, through trust and dependence on God. Think about it. Think about the odds, okay? An army of 300 versus an army of hundreds of thousands. Tell me any logical situation where that works. It doesn't. The only way it works is through God, through balance, through trust and dependence. So now we're going to get into chapter 8. And chapter 8 is where Gideon loses the plot. (laughs) Chapter 8 is where Gideon starts to fall apart and give in to pride. You can go to the next slide. So Gideon's downfall. Power goes to his head. Gideon becomes extremely confident in himself, and he becomes unnecessarily violent. He's had this great victory, but he's had a taste for blood. I mean, he just chopped off two guys' heads. And so now he's like, hey, I like this. Like, I used to be the weakest guy in my family, but now everyone looks at me like I am like this great military leader. So pride goes to his head, and Gideon begins to make threats, and he begins to beat his allies. Let's look at verse 4 in chapter 8. So Gideon and his 300 men were exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, they came to the Jordan and crossed it. So they're still chasing. They're still chasing these Midianites. And he said to the men of Succoth, um, give my troops some bread. 
They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So he's taken out the generals, but he has not gotten the kings. But the officials of that town said, do you already have those guys' hands in your possession? I mean, why should we give bread to your troops? And Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given me these guys, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. So this is intense. Like, Gideon goes to a group of villagers, and these are Israelites. These are like people who should be on his side, and he should be on theirs. So he shows up, and he says, hey, we're trying to capture these two kings. We're really hungry. Can you give us some bread? And the response of these men in this town are like, hey, uh, yeah, like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not going to capture those guys. There's no way you're going to do that. You're Gideon. We know who you are. You're the weakest guy in your family. So Gideon, instead of being humble, his pride kicks up. And so he swears revenge. He's like, you know what? When I get those guys, I'm going to come back to your town. I'm going to beat you in the face with thorn bushes. Like, that's, that's what he says. It's, it's gnarly. It's pride. Look at verse 8. From there, he went to Peniel, and he made the same request of them. He's like, guys, give us some bread. But they answered the same way the other town had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down your tower. That's what he says. He's like, oh, you're not going to give me bread? Well, when I defeat these guys, I'm going to come back to your town and like, knock down your tower. This is intense. This is pride. So I'm going to summarize what happens. Gideon captures those guys. He captures the king, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he comes back to the village to show them. He's like, I'm going to prove to you guys that I will do what I will say that I will do. So look at verse 15. So he came and said to the men of Succoth, here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give you bread for your exhausted men? Then he took the elders of the town and taught the men of the town a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. And he pulled down the, tire, the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. He goes back to the town and he beats these, these are Israelites, like these are his countrymen, and he beats them in the face with thorn bushes. Imagine like getting beaten in the face with a thorn bush. And then he goes to the other town and he knocks, he like pushes this tower over, kills all the people in the tower. These are, he's becoming a mafia boss. He's turned from this guy who followed the Lord and he had this balance and, and he started as very insecure. Remember the tightrope. He starts as very insecure, leaning to one side, about to fall, and then he achieves balance. He's not insecure and he's not prideful. He's perfectly trusting the Lord. And now he's completely to the other side, about to fall into pride. He, He's completely fallen off the tightrope at this point. So then he turns to the captured kings in verse 18. Ziba and Zalmunna, these guys. So these are basically like the leaders of ISIS. He turns to them and he asks Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? And they said, men like you, people who looked like you, basically saying, you're family members. In verse 19, Gideon said, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I wouldn't kill you. But now you're going to die. So verse 20, he turned to Jether, his oldest son, and said, kill them. He puts a sword in the hands of his son. 
But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. So then Ziba and Zamuna said, hey, come do it yourself because as is a man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and kills them and he took the ornaments off their camel's necks because whenever you kill somebody, you got to steal their camel gold apparently. Here's what happens. He shows up and he says, hey, if you hadn't messed with my family, you kings of Midian, then I would not have killed you. But since you have messed with my family members, you're going down. So he puts a sword in his son's hand and says, kill these guys. But his son's like, I've never killed anybody, dad. This is really awkward. And so the kings are like, hey, why don't you just kill us yourself, making your little son do it? <laughs> they're, they're messing with him. And so he just ends up killing them himself. It's this crazy picture. And I see in this picture this back and forth shift from insecurity to pride. Gideon's prideful in that instead of trying to defend God's honor, he's only trying to defend the honor of his own pride and his family. And the evil kings attack his insecurity. They say, you're going to make your little son kill us? Why not be a man and do it yourself? And that kicks up his pride again. Gideon's just back and forth with his insecurity and pride. Let's look at, let's look at what happens next. Verse 22. So the Israelites said to Gideon, you should be our king. Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us. You're our savior, Gideon. So Gideon's response, he has a moment of humility. He says, I'm not going to rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, because the Lord will rule over you. So he has this, he has this moment of balance. He comes back. But here's what happens. He has a good response. They say, be our king. He says, no, only God can be king. But right after that, his next move is this bizarre little story where he asks everyone to give him their gold. He says, everyone give me your gold. Give me your gold earrings. Give me your gold necklaces. Give me all your stuff. Does anyone remember another story in the Old Testament where somebody asked for everyone's gold and what happened next? Anyone remember? Yeah? Just stretching your hand? Okay. So Moses... On Mount Sinai, there was a situation where Moses, when this is earlier in the story, where Moses goes up to the mountain to talk to God, and his brother Aaron, the priest, they like start to freak out because it's been like a few days and God hasn't spoken. So they're like, oh, maybe we need a new God. So Aaron says, give me your gold, your necklaces, your earrings. And what happens? He makes a golden calf and says, this gold cow will be our God now. Kind of silly, right? But that's exactly what happens. Gideon takes everyone's gold, throws it in a blanket, and he goes off and makes something called an ephod out of gold. Now, why did he do it? An ephod, this is like really random details from Old Testament history, but an ephod was a special gold vest worn by the high priest. So Gideon makes this vest, this gold vest, and he's making a statement. He's saying, because God is with me, I'm your priest. You come to me to get to God. If you want to get to God, you come to me and you go through me. And what he's really doing is he's making an idol. Just like Aaron made that gold calf, Gideon is making this idol, this monument to himself that causes everyone to sin. Look at verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. It says they played the harlot. They treated Gideon like a god, basically. They looked up to him, and they're like, Gideon, you're the man. And he had this gold vest, this priest vest, and he put it up in his town on display so everyone could see it. And people worshipped him, basically, like he was a god. It was a monument. It was him saying, look what I've done. 
Look what I've done. So how does the story end? And for those of you guys who are used to us not going through two chapters at once, you're like, yes, please, how does the story end? Here's how it ends. Verse 28. Thus... Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. So it's good. Midian's defeated. But how else does the story end? Well, verse 29. Gideon, Jerubel, the son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons. That's a lot of kids. Like, maybe just 40, like 70. That's a lot. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives, His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. We'll learn more about him next time. He has a very dark story. Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Oprah. So how does Gideon's story end? Well, people are worshiping idols, and he is not satisfied. He has no satisfaction. So he's going around, and he's marrying tons and tons of women. To get 70 sons, you have to have a lot of wives. That is intense. This is a man who has no self-control, and so much so that not only does he have a bunch of wives, but he has concubines, which were basically ancient Mideastern sex slaves, a wife who wasn't a real wife. She was only there for sexual reasons, basically a slave. So not the best story for Gideon. Verse 33 No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their God, and they did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of the enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Gideon in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Huh. So pride ends in failure. This is terrible. Like, this is a terrible situation because Gideon, remember, was sent to deliver people from idolatry. Think back to the beginning. What was Gideon's mission? God shows up, Gideon, I've chosen you for a great mission. What was the mission? To rescue people from idolatry. How did Gideon's story end? Well, Gideon causes idolatry. He defeats the enemy. He has like a good day. (laughs) He has like one good day where he trusts the Lord. And then he defeats the enemy, and right after, he leads people back into idolatry. He sets up this little thing for people to worship, this little shrine to his victory. He wants people to think, oh, I'm great. Look at me. I'm awesome. I'm going to set up this little gold thing so that people can come and remember what a good guy I am. And people worship it. And so Gideon fails his original mission. He leads people into idolatry. And as soon as Gideon died, the children of Israel went and they worshiped other idols. In the end... When it comes to the mission God gave Gideon, even though he won the battle, he lost the war, which is so sad. Like, why did Gideon even make that idol in the first place? Well, I really believe it was because he wanted to make a monument to himself. In his pride, he thought he deserved it. And in his his insecurity, he thinks, without this, no one will remember me. And the tragic thing is, after Gideon dies, no one remembers him. They don't come to worship at his altar. They find other places to worship. And as we finish today, I want to ask you guys the question, where has your pride kept you from being a part of God's plan and mission? Because insecurity and pride were Gideon's downfall. I mean, imagine what's going through Gideon's mind. Let's make it relatable. This would be like if you were the smallest, shortest, 
weakest, most unpopular guy or girl at your school, and God appeared to you and said, I want you to be the quarterback and win the game for my glory, or I want you to be the cheer captain and lead the, cheer the team to victory and all this stuff, and you say, no way, God, not me. I'm not capable. But then God does it, and you have faith, but then all of a sudden, your insecurity has been completely flipped over to pride because now everyone in the school thinks you're the best. All the girls are flirting with you, asking you on dates. All the guys want to be you. If you're a girl, all the guys are asking you out. Imagine what that would do to someone's pride, especially if you spent your entire life being so insecure, and now you're having this giant burst of success. I think this story is a great example of how, if we are successful, if we don't walk in humility, what can become of us? Pride went to his head, and he went too far. You can go back to that first slide of the tightrope. So I just want to talk to you guys as we wrap up about how to find this balance, because I think it's really important. I've struggled with these things my whole life, and if you're a normal human, I think you have too. I've been a very insecure person growing up. I was very just unsure of my abilities, of my looks, of my talents. I was always questioning myself, always doubting myself. And my insecurity led me to some weird places. I remember I had this crush on this girl in elementary school, and I was working my way to like tell her that I liked her. And fourth grade round, or came around, you know, I started in second grade liking this girl, and I held on to that crush to like fourth grade. And then this guy came named Court, and he was this cool surfer bro type of guy in fourth grade. He had the long hair, and I could tell this girl that I liked liked him too. So I was so insecure that I actually went to that guy and like threatened him. Like five, fourth grade chubby me on the playground, like, hey, listen, like you stay away from her, okay? Like my insecurity led me to do some weird things. Um, another thing that I struggled with in high school was feeling really insecure at parties. And I didn't go to many. I didn't get invited to many because I was the pastor's kid. But anytime I ended up at a party, um, my best friend was, weirdly enough, the coolest guy in school. Everyone loved this guy. And I loved him, too. He was so charming and um, had so much charisma. He was the kind of guy, I don't know if you have any friends like this. Um, the one, and I love this about him because he's a born leader. But I remember, like, you know, maybe you have friends like this where we'd be a group of friends and we'd all be trying to figure out, like, hey, where do you guys want to eat? Do you want to go here? Do you want to go here? Do you want to go here? He would just stand up and be like, we're going there. And everyone would get in their car and go where he wanted to go. He was that guy. He was the ringleader. Um, so I love this guy so much. He's still my best friend in the world. But in high school, there, I had this huge struggle because he was so cool that anytime I was at a party with him, I felt so inferior. Like, I felt like just he was so awesome and so cool and charming and funny that anytime I was around other people, I felt myself shrink and I just felt so insecure and I felt just like, oh man, I can never be as cool as this guy. I can never be as funny. I can never be as good looking. Maybe you struggle with that too. Maybe you have friends or people where you, when you're around them, it's not that you don't like them, but it's just you feel like you can never measure up to their greatness. And so there's that insecurity that you battle in your heart. And you know what? I struggle with pride just as much as insecurity. Um, we all love to hear people say how great we are. It, it does something to us where, you know, we kind of perk up and we're like, oh, yeah, maybe I am great. I have a really embarrassing story of pride. Uh, it's really pathetic when you hear about um, just how prideful I was in this moment. So um, I went to a play. Um, Micah Salas. How many of you guys know Micah? 
Yeah? So Michael Solis was in this play, Fiddler on the Roof. Um, that is a movie that I've grown up loving, and I actually played the main character in this little production at, you know, at my school. It wasn't a full play. It was just this tiny thing. And Micah knew that, you know, and so his dad was like, hey, you know, over the summer, my son's going to be in this play. You should work with him and get together with him and kind of give him some training, which I didn't. I didn't end up doing that. I didn't have the time to do it. So at the play, I came, and I went to the restroom. So I was in this bathroom stall, and as I was in there, I overheard these two boys from the play come in, and this was their conversation. I wrote it down. OMG, I heard the youth pastor from Calvary Vista is here, and he's an amazing actor. Yeah, I heard his dream is to go to Broadway and play the main character in this play. Oh my gosh, we better do good. I know, the pressure's on, right? I hope he thinks we're good. And I was sitting in the stall, and I was just like, yeah, I'm awesome. And then like it hit me. I was like, I'm sitting in a bathroom stall, like a kid's play, like thinking about how cool I am. That's not cool. That's pathetic. That's like midlife crisis. Like that's like what? So, so I struggle with pride. I get it. Like we get those moments where it's just like, it's embarrassing when we realize how foolish we're being in our pride. And I think the issue is it's one of stealing glory. Okay. Think of it that way. Pride is stealing glory from the Lord. One way we can think about it is how God's glory belongs to him, and it shouldn't be messed with. How many of you guys have seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Anybody? Yeah? So Indiana Jones, you've got that classic scene where Harrison Ford walks up. You're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. He's, he walks up to that ancient artifact, and it's sitting there on that like stone tablet, and there's that light beam coming down. It's just like, and he, he's walking up to it, and he's like, okay, I've got to steal this thing. But in order to steal it, I have to put something in its place and make a swap. You know what I'm talking about? Because there's a trigger, right? There's a trap. So he goes, and he tries to steal that thing, and he puts this, like, vase or pot in its place. So he makes the quick swipe, and he thinks he gets away with it. But what happens? That giant boulder falls down, and it starts chasing him. It's the same one on the ride at Disneyland. You know that giant boulder that chases you? That's what happens. And in a similar way, I think when we try to steal God's glory and replace it with the counterfeit of our own, that's where the giant boulder of sin starts chasing after us. And honestly, that's one of the best punishments that God can give us. Because think about it. Think about punishment for sin. Like, how many of you have ever been punished by your parents? Yeah? Yeah? We all have. So when it comes to, like, punishment from God, what does that look like? Has God ever struck you with lightning? Anyone here ever been struck by lightning? Only Malik. I can believe that. Um, Just kidding, buddy. (laughs) But uh, none of us have been struck by lightning. God has never sent a flood into our bedroom. He's never cursed us and made us sprout leprosy spots. So how does God punish us for our sin? Well, a lot of times, you know what? I think the way he punishes us for our sin is he allows the consequences of our sin to catch up with us. Just like that boulder comes after Indiana Jones, he allows that boulder of sin to hit us and catch up with us. He allows us to get the evil that is in our hearts. He allows it to catch up with us. That's what happens to Gideon. Gideon's a man who he has the sin of insecurity and the sin of pride warring in his heart. And God says, I want to use you, but you have to put your trust in me constantly, Gideon. You have to constantly surrender to me. And what happens? He does it for a moment, but then he gives in either to his insecurity or his pride. And his sin ends up catching up with him and crushing him. 
Honestly, one of the best prayers you can pray is, Lord, save me from myself. Seriously, pray that. Like, God knows the darkness in your own heart. He knows the darkness in my heart. As your pastor, I'm telling you, I need to constantly ask the Lord, save me from myself. Save me from who I could be without you. Because who we are without the Lord is the worst possible situation for our lives. And you can be saved, you can be going to heaven, but you can still give in to that flesh. That's what the Bible calls it, your old man or your old woman. It's not talking about a senior citizen. It's talking about who you were before Christ. That person is always chasing you. And when you are prideful and you decide to give in to your sin, God allows that old person to catch up with you, and the results are never good. Another way we need to think about glory is that we need to guard it. When I go for a walk, oftentimes over a Guahomey Lake, many times I pass by houses with fences. And sure enough, if I get too close to those fences, a dog will come out and start barking at me. And I hate it, because I always have headphones on, so it always takes me by surprise. But whenever those dogs come out, what I know is that I'm getting too close to their homes and to the glory of their master's homes. And I think, honestly, we all need to kind of have guard dogs set up in our soul. Here's what I mean by that. We need to work out systems in our soul so that when we start getting too close to God's glory and trying to steal it for ourselves, those those guard dogs in our soul start kind of barking and saying, hey, back off. That's the Lord's glory. And how do we set those up? How do we set those things up in our heart? We need to constantly go to God and ask him, God, am I sinning? Am I prideful right now? God, am I taking your glory for my own? God, people are complimenting me. People are telling me that I'm great. People are saying, good job. Am I loving this? Am I just like glowing on the inside because I love getting the glory so much? You need to be asking yourself, God, give me safeguards in my heart. God, give me a Holy Spirit checkup where anytime I start giving into my pride, I start feeling that conviction of the Spirit saying, hey, listen, that glory belongs to the Lord. Yes, he wants to involve you, but the glory needs to go to the Lord. The glory always belongs to the Lord, just like sunlight always belongs to the sun. Can you experience the light of the sun? Come on, can you? Yeah, you can experience the light of the sun. You can, you know, sunbathe. You can go out and get a tan. You can let it shine through you if you're a pot, you know, if you're a clay pot and you've got some broken crags in there, the sunlight, the beams will come through you. But what would happen if you tried to steal sunlight? Like if you tried to like go in space and like get super close to the sun and steal this, like you, you, would, you would get burned. You would get destroyed by it. And in the same way, when we try to steal the glory that rightfully belongs to the Lord, we're welcoming destructive sin of pride into our lives. It's interesting that anytime someone in the Old Testament seems to have God's spirit fall on them, the story starts with them doing great things, but it usually ends in tragedy. It's almost like humans can't handle the spirit of God because our human nature tends to take what God gives us and corrupts it, just like Adam and Eve were given a beautiful garden and a beautiful humanity, and what happened? They corrupted it. It's like that great classic line in Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. So often our good power becomes corrupted by our insecurity or by our pride. I think this is why 
this is where Luke Skywalker's at. I know I keep talking about Star Wars, but I love Star Wars. In, in the new one that's coming out, episode eight, think about Luke, okay? Luke has tangled with the light side of the force and the dark side, and he's seen the destruction. And so in the trailer, he says, I only know one thing. It's time for the Jedi to end. In Luke's mind, he's like, this force is so powerful, we shouldn't even mess with it. Is that our explanation? Like, do we say like, oh, the spirit of God is too powerful. We shouldn't even mess with it. I don't think so. I think it all comes down to the balance, the balance of humility and going to the Lord and saying, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. Listen, Gideon, the spirit of God was too much for him because the spirit used him for good, but Gideon allowed his pride to get to his head. And so he said, I'm the chosen one. God needs me. I'm needed. I'm powerful. I'm important. And so Gideon completely falls off the side. How can we avoid this? The key to balance is Jesus. Because think about it, in the Old Testament with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God would fall on someone. What's the difference? In the New Testament, the Spirit doesn't fall on you. The Spirit dwells within you. The Spirit becomes a part of you. The Spirit is not a force like in Star Wars. It's a person. Jesus said, my Spirit, he will dwell in you and become a part of you. That's the key to balance, guys. It's the spirit. And I said this in a recent study, but we need to constantly ask God to fill us with his spirit. Like some people are like, well, I'm saved. Like why do I need to ask God for his spirit? Don't I just have it? Think about it this way. Your body, science says, is about 60 to 70% water, right? You ever heard this in science class? Your body is about 60 to 70% water. But do you still need a drink, Right? You would die. You can't just be like, I have tons of water in my body. My body's 60% water. No, if you don't take a drink, you'll die. In the same way, God's spirit is with you. It's in you, but you constantly need to go back for a filling. You can't, Some of you guys have not done this in years. Some of you guys have, because you know what? You know what it is? You're waiting for a camp. That's what it is. You're waiting for that moment where the music's playing and the lights are down and like the speaker's speaking in a really emotional, dramatic way and his sweat's flying off his, you know, face and you're in the front row getting hit by the sweat. You're like, oh, the holy sweat. Sorry, that's gross. I don't know what I'm saying. But you know what I mean? Like you're at camp and it's this great dramatic moment and everyone's crying and you're like, oh, the spirit of the Lord. That's great. Those moments are great. But listen, you can ask God for a fresh filling of his spirit today and he will give it to you without dramatic lights or music. The balance is humility. It's the humility that comes to the Lord and says, God, I cast off my weights and I come to you. That's what we need. You know, the balancing act, the balancing act, it's not a matter of like, I, I need to have uh, you know, this much insecurity and balance it with this much pride. The balance is just get rid of those weights. Just cast off the insecurity and cast off the pride. Yeah, they'll come back at times. But in those moments, you've got to just go to the Lord and say, God, I'm feeling really insecure right now. Help me to have strength in you. Or God, I'm feeling really prideful right now. Give me humility to trust you in this moment and say, I can only do this by your power. The balance is in humility and in Jesus. J.C. Ryle says this, prayer and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke the prayer. We need to cast off these sins of insecurity or pride 
before we come to the Lord. Because if we try to walk with the Lord and we bring these weights along with us, we won't succeed. Andrew Murray, who wrote a book on humility, he's like the humility master. I encourage you guys to read that book. He would never call himself the humility master because he's too humble, but I'm calling him that. He says this, humility, listen, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. God is everything. There's an old saying that um, a preacher said, where he said, basically, if we try to stop sin in our life by our own efforts, we're like a spider trying to stop a boulder with a spider web. Like, we have no hope in that. Like, if a rock is coming towards a spider and he says, I'll build a web, that's, I'm gonna do my best. I'll build the best web I can do. That rock is gonna go right through it. The spider's best efforts can do nothing. He needs an outside force to help him. So many of us, either we lean so heavy on our insecurity, just saying, I can never be anything, I can never measure up, or our pride, I can do this on my own. But no matter what your web is, whether it's a web of insecurity or a web of pride, it can't stop sin and destruction and all these things in your life, and it can't help you to do the things that you were made to do. So the answer is humility, to say to God, I can't do this. No matter how prideful or no matter how insecure I am, I can't do this on my own. I need you, Jesus. Andrew Murray says this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Let's think on that as we leave today. How can pride die in us so that heaven can live in our hearts? Jesus, we love you. God, I'm just, I'm in a room full of high school students, which means that I am in a room full of insecure and prideful people, sometimes a mixture of both. We're humans, God. We become insecure. We doubt ourselves. We become prideful. We think too great of ourselves. God, the tightrope is so hard to walk, and we see with Gideon how quick and easy it is to go to one extreme or the other. God, I ask you that you would help us today to walk in this balance. Help us to leave here today just simply saying, Jesus, you must increase, I must decrease. Make me more like you. Make me humble, make me meek. That means power under control. Give me a heart like yours. We need a heart transplant. God, help us to not become like Gideon, a guy who failed his mission, who had a good moment, but in the end failed. Help us, Lord, to see the mission through till the end. I pray for anyone here who's insecure, that you would help them to have so much confidence, not in themselves, but in you. And they would know that they are beautiful and loved and valuable and gifted because you have made them that way. Help them to have confidence in you. If there's anyone here who struggles with pride, Lord, help them to realize that the only reason they have the power that they have is because you gave it to them. And with great power does come great responsibility. Help them to wield that power with humility and love. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the balance that comes by your spirit. Help us to walk in it today. In your name, amen.